We're going to jump right in. What's today? Did you bring your palms to church? Yes, you did. Let's see your palms. It's, it's Palm Sunday every Sunday. We lift our hands up to the Lord. Because these are the palms that really count. Amen. Amen. Giving praise unto God. Rejoicing in his presence. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 19. You ready to find out some things about this day? Yes. Okay, good, good. Okay, listen. Luke chapter 19, verse 29. And it came to pass when he, Jesus, drew near to Bethpage. That's not Long Island. That's in Israel. And Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, in other words, the Mount of Olives, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to him, said to them, why are you loosing the colt? They said, for the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him, the donkey, to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near, when, as he now was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For the mighty works they had seen... For the mighty works they had seen. Why were the people praising and worshiping God? Come on. Why were they worshiping and praising God? Turn to somebody and say they've seen something. I, I, I want to spend a moment on this here. There's a reason why so many people gathered themselves at the base of the Mount of Olives as Jesus was coming from the east, from the area of Bethany where Lazarus was risen from the dead. There's a reason why so many of them gathered there. Now, they're getting ready for the Passover holiday. Okay, many of you know that Passover and Easter usually coincide. Okay, so, so the pilgrims now, the, the, the tourists from all over the Roman Empire, are coming to obey that command that they're supposed to present themselves before the Lord at this particular feast. The historian Josephus, and I wish you'd go study after him, it's amazing, uh, he says, he claims that during this time in history, Jesus' time, that upwards of a million people would gather in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem at that time wasn't, a, wasn't you wouldn't call it a metropolis, and um, over a million people would come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Now, here we are the Sunday before, okay? And the Bible says here, the New Testament tells us, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the base of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude. And I was listening to a very respected Bible commentator recently. And he said, he said, it's safe to assume that when the Bible talks about a multitude, it's about 10 to 15,000 people. But when it says whole multitude or great multitude, it was probably closer to 100,000 people. You say, well, that doesn't sound right. How could that be possible? Well, 
if they're starting to come in already for the, for the Passover feast, the Passover feast is about five days from that. So they're starting to come in early. So it's not impossible for tens of thousands, up to 100,000 people to be present in that location where Jesus is coming through. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I want to really lay this foundation because I want you to walk away today with a completely different picture of Palm Sunday, of the triumph. I want you to recognize and understand, my God, what took place that day was monumental. Amen? Amen. Now, verse 38, the multitude were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, let's, let's look at this. You might say to yourself, it's kind of unusual that, that the Lord would choose a donkey to enter into Jerusalem. After all, this is called the triumphant entry. But in reality, it was a perfect choice because donkeys were ridden by royalty. When a king came to a city, a village, a town, if he's riding on a donkey and you see him afar off with his entourage, you say, he's coming in peace. He's coming in peace. If a king is riding on a stallion, you better get your army together. Now, it's interesting because Jesus came in peace to redeem fallen humanity. He will come again. But this time, he's not going to be riding a donkey. When he comes the next time, he's riding a white stallion because he's coming to rule and to reign. He's coming to judge the world, and he's coming to judge Satan. Now, I want you to listen. So much was accomplished that day pertaining to the coming of the Messiah. And look at this. This is the sad part. This is the sad part. Although it's a day of rejoicing, it's also a day of sadness. Why? The religious people didn't recognize what day it was. Now... I could go into a lot of stuff here, but I'm going to stick with three things. On that day, Jesus fulfilled three major prophecies. Major prophecies that if you were raised as a, as a Jew in that culture, you would have known immediately. And how many of them that stood there, except for the religious people? Because how many of you know religion blinds you? It's a relationship with Jesus Christ that opens your eyes. It's not religion. Okay? Now... The book of Zechariah tells us this. I'm skipping ahead here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So anybody there that was a prophecy expert would have went, He's riding a donkey. They're welcoming him with palm branches. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, really, really. We, that's an Americanization of the word, Hoshienu, Hoshienu, which means God save us, God rescue us, God redeem us. God, they're saying we believe this is God. He fulfilled that prophecy. Daniel gives even a more spectacular prophecy. Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, he talks about 69 weeks of years that God would deal with the Jewish people. 
And he said that it would be 69 weeks of years from the time that King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, from the time that he gave the command for Jerusalem and the temple to be rebuilt would be 483 years. Guess what day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on? 483 years to the day. Amen. To the day. So anybody standing there that knew the Daniel prophecy, here's another one. He enters into the exact gate in Jerusalem, that was prophesied, this is the gate that Messiah the king will ride into Jerusalem. Can I have that picture, please? Now, this gate is known by a lot of different names throughout the word of God. One of the most familiar ones you're probably aware of is in Acts chapter 3, and it's called the gate beautiful. This is the gate where Peter and John healed that paralyzed man and caused him to be put in prison over that. Okay? That's the gate. Now, it was also called the gate of everlasting life. It's also referred to as the eastern gate, and there's a very good reason for it, because it faces the east. Now, if we were in Jerusalem today, and it's there, it's there, okay? You see, you know what's right behind it? The Dome of the Rock. That means the temple complex is right on the other side of this wall, okay? Now, if we were there, and we're standing at that gate with our back to the gate and looking straight ahead, we would be looking directly at the Mount of Olives, it's directly to the east, okay? At that time, there's the Mount of Olives. There's a valley, which Jesus had to come through, and come up to the other side, and you, he would have walked right through the spot where this gate is. Okay, now, this is a reconstruction, but it's on the same exact spot that the original one was. Now, the reason why it was called the Gate Beautiful is because it's facing where? The east. What comes up in the morning in the east? The sun. So that, these doors here would have been covered with beautiful brass engravings. And so when the sun would come up and hit these gates, oh, my God, you could see the reflection all over the Mount of Olives, all through that, that valley that lay in between there. This is important. I'm, I'm spending time because that's exactly where Jesus is going to come when he comes back. When he returns to the earth and we return with him, okay? You know, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. Email me. I don't have time to explain it right now. <laughs> His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. You remember in Acts chapter 1? When he departed, where did he depart from? The Mount of Olives. And the angel said to the people, to the disciples, why are you standing here with your mouth open? The way you see him leave is the way you're going to see him return. And Zechariah the prophet says, when his feet touch there, the Mount of Olives is going to split in half. Now, right now, Jerusalem is, is not located on the water. Jerusalem is inland. But when that earthquake takes place, it's going to go from that mountain, rip right across uh, Israel to the Mediterranean, open up, and the Mediterranean is going to rush in. And from that, part, that point forward, Jerusalem is a port city. Why is that important? Because where you have water, you have life. When he returns, he is the water of life. He's the one who bubbles up on the inside of us. And Jerusalem at that point will have very lively. The Dead Sea will not be dead anymore. There'll be fish that come and occupy. It's a restoration, okay? The prophets of old understood this. So Jesus now is riding a donkey just like Zechariah said. And mind you, you're the religious person. You're supposed to know everything. You see. You look around. Wait a minute. He's riding a donkey. They're proclaiming him Messiah, Mashiach. It's 
483 years today that the order was given for the temple to be reconstructed. He's going through the gate that Ezekiel said he would. One, two, three, strikes you out. And they couldn't see it. And what do they say? Hey, tell your disciples to be quiet. They're making too much noise. And he goes, really? If I tell them to be quiet, the very stones themselves are going to cry out. Now you say, well, that's a figurative thing. No, the concept of nature responding to its creator is not unheard of. It's all throughout scripture. Okay? Um, let me read to you. Isaiah 55, 12. I used to love singing this song years and decades ago. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. You want to read the rest of it with me? Come on, nice and loud. The mountains and the hills. Oh, it's not up there. I guess you can't read it. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, 12. Well, let's just go on. You can listen to me. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall what? Clap their hands. Why is it saying this? Is this, is this oh, it's just figurative speaking. Well, Psalm 114.7 says, Tremble, O earth, in the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. I, 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 I notice in Acts chapter 4, I believe it is, it's not there, don't go looking for it, uh, that when the disciples got together, after Peter and, and John were let out of prison, it says they prayed, and the whole place that they prayed was shaken, shaken, okay? Nature responds to its creator sometimes better than we do. Amen? Amen? Amen. So, Ezekiel, let's go there. Ezekiel chapter 44, we're talking about that gate, the gate beautiful, the eastern gate, the gate of everlasting life. Ezekiel 44, verse 1, then he, Ezekiel speaking about an angel that appeared to him, brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east, and it was shut. Now, watch this now. Look at me, look at me, look at me. During Ezekiel's time, it wasn't shut. During Jesus' time, it wasn't shut. But Ezekiel is getting a vision of the last days, and he said, God showed him, in the last days, after the Messiah comes through this gate, it's going to be shut. I'll explain that to you. Okay. Then, the, then said the Lord unto me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be open, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, look at this, look at that. Who's Jesus? Oh, is Jesus God? Is Jesus not God? Well, look what the scripture says. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered into it, or entered in by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. It is for the prince the prince. Now, the, the word prince, the term prince in the Old Testament, many times is talking about the Messiah. Pastor, I'm sitting here, and I'm one, these are wonderful facts, and I'm, I'm really impressed. I'm not telling you these to be impressed. I'm telling you these to make you understand that this Bible is very much alive, and it is very accurate. And when it says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so six, 700 years before Jesus walks through this gate, Ezekiel has a vision. An angel appears to him and shows him, hey, the day's going to come. After, after the Lord God of Israel had entered in it, that it's going to be shut. And nobody's going to enter into it. Until when? The next time. Now, why is the gate shut? Who shut the gate? Well, if you know your history a little bit, about the year six, 700, the Muslims rose up and conquered Jerusalem. 
And they knew the prophecy of Ezekiel. They knew that at some point in time, the Messiah is going to come through that gate, and they don't want him there. So what do they do? They block it up. They brick it up. They cover it with stone. Well, because in their mind, we stopped the Messiah. Are you joking? <laughs> this is the same Messiah that's going to split the Mount of Olives in half. This wall's going to stop him? But you see, that's the foolishness of man. Now, you can go to Jerusalem today. It's still closed. You can go up to it. You can come from the, from the, from the eastern side, or you can come from within the temple compound. You can walk up to that gate, but you can't walk through it. Closed off. Why? It's waiting for someone to come and open it. And when he comes, he's going to, from the Mount of Olives, oh, God, I could picture this. I can't wait to say it. So cool. He's going to, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. One of the greatest earthquakes that's ever known to mankind is going to take place. It's going to split that thing. And then he's going to look at that gate and go, open. And every piece of stone and block is going to just obliterate. And he's going to march from the Mount of Olives down. And listen, you know what else the Muslims said? Is, you know, uh, for a person that... Uh, Jesus was known as a rabbi then, okay? And, and you know, Islamic doctrine, so they, they believe that Jesus is a prophet. They don't believe that he's God. That's where the problem comes from, okay? So, so they said, well, this Messiah person is going to be somebody who's under a Nazarite vow, a vow that keeps a person very strict. And they said no rabbi or Nazarite would dare walk in a cemetery. So what did they put? They put a cemetery in between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. Okay. And the cemetery is there to this day because they think these foolish things are going to stop the Messiah from coming. <laughs> oh, gee. The one who said Lazarus come forth is going to be scared of a brick wall. <laughs> so I want you to understand the significance of this day. Now, can I give you the real message? Can I give you the real message? All right. Let's do a little review here. John 12, 13 says that they took palm branches and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Matthew 21, 9 says, the crowd, say crowds, went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. That's significant. Why? They believe this is the Messiah because the Messiah, one of his titles is the son of David. Yes or no? Okay, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now, watch this now. I want you to see what John the Apostle wrote about this day. Remember, 1213 says that they took palm, branch, palm branches, they went out and welcomed him. But look at verse 17, John chapter 12, verse 17. Does anybody know what's recorded for us in John chapter 11? Go ahead. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead just before this. Okay? Now watch. Remember there was a multitude, right? There was a whole multitude, a whole lot of people. Yes? Bible talks about, the Gospels talk about crowds being there. Yes? Okay, thank you, David. John 12, 17. Therefore, I want you to see this. Follow me here closely. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they had heard what? That he had done this sign. Okay? What is this saying? 
what does they say? What is it telling us here? Watch this now. It's telling us that within that multitude was people, were people that were there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine being in the crowd? Remember how I've told you in the past? Put yourself on the scene when you read something. And here's, I put myself on the scene. You know what I hear? And you know what I see? I see people tapping each other on the shoulder. Person, said, hey, hey, you see this guy? I was there when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. Really? You're kidding me. Hey, 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 I was there when he told his sisters, roll the stone away. And I was there. I heard his sister say, Lord, he's been dead four days now. He's got a stink by this time. And Jesus went, roll that stone away. And another one would say, hey, 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 I remember. I was there. I saw the guy walk out of the tomb wrapped up in linen cloth. I saw him. I saw the, another one say, I saw the disciples unravel him, take these linen cloths, these grave cloths off of him. I was there. I saw the whole thing. Somebody else in the crowd goes, oh, yeah? I was there at another funeral that he stopped and touched the man in the casket and raised that young man up and gave him back to his mother, who was a widow, and he was her only son. Another one would say, I was there when he opened up the blind eyes. And the whole multitude is talking. They're chattering amongst each other. What does it say? They bore witness of the sign that he had done. They're all, why do you think they're saying, Hosanna, Hoshienu, save us, heal us, rescue us? The majority of the people in that crowd had seen, I'll guarantee we get to heaven, it's not unlikely that the woman with the issue of blood was in that crowd. And she's going, to sit, she's going to step forward and go, huh, let me tell you what happened to me. <laughs> Everybody's bearing witness. Can you see it? Can you see it? Can you see it in your imagination? The crowd is wild. They're waving palm branches. They're shouting Hosanna. They're dancing in the streets. They're taking their robes and throwing it down so that even his donkey wouldn't dirty its feet as he enters into Jerusalem. And then he gets to the gates, he walk, and, the, and the Pharisees, the ones who should have been the first ones out there, He's here, he's here, he's here. Hey, tell these people to calm down. And he goes, really? Because if they shut up, the very stones right here who've been waiting for thousands of years to see this day, they're going to shout out. You got the picture? Now watch this. Luke, Luke chapter 19, verse 37. Just a few days later. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong scripture. Luke 23, verse 1. How many people were there on Palm Sunday? The whole multitude, yes? Well, look who's there again a few days later. Verse 1. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. Wait a second. They said that about him. The multitude said that about him. They declared him Messiah. They declared him to be king. Skip down to verse 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man. 
concerning those things that you accuse him. Pilate must have said, wait a second. I got reports the beginning of the week. Last weekend, I got reports that all this multitude of people were declaring him to be king, were declaring him to be healer, were declaring to be, be Messiah. He's, he's not a Jew. He's a Roman. He's confused. Like, well, what's going on here? Isn't this the same guy that brought me report last weekend that he's coming into Jerusalem and being declared king by, the, by these people? Verse, 14, verse 15, no, neither did Herod, for I, sent him, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him, punish him, torment him, torture him, and release him. For it was necessary for him, Pilate, to release one of them at the feast during Passover. And they cried out at once, saying, away with this man, and release Barabbas to us. Who had been thrown into, you know, Barabbas' name is very interesting. We go Barabbas because we're Americans. But in Hebrew, it's Barabbas. 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 Now, what is Abba? This man's name is Son of the Father. Who's Jesus? Son of the Father. Which one do they choose? They choose the Son of the Father, who's the devil, instead of the one whose Father is God Almighty. Okay. So they said, wait with this man and release this Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion, made in the city, and for murder. They chose a murderer. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. What were they saying just a few days before? Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us. Heal us. Redeem us. Rescue us. Matthew says, in Matthew 27, Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Now, you know Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? <laughs> Mary wasn't Mrs. Christ. Or Jesus, who was called Mashiach. We get, we get Christ from the, the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. Well, the word in Hebrew for anointed one is Mashiach, where we get the word Messiah from. So what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Messiah? They said, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, he doesn't understand this, because he's still like, wait a minute, this is the same guy. Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. Wow. What a difference a few days makes. Just a few days. Let me tell you where this message came from. Or I should say how I arrived at it. About two and a half weeks ago, in the morning, I get up to you know, read the Bible for myself, which is a difficult thing to do. When you're a minister, when you're a pastor, every time you read the Bible, another message comes up. So what I do is I purposely don't keep a notepad with me when I'm reading for me, just to feed me. I won't keep it up, but it still happens. So, so I felt impressed about two and a half weeks ago to go back and start reading the book of Deuteronomy again, <laughs> which is one step above Leviticus, okay? So, so I'm reading the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm seeing a common theme here. I'm like, man, I've read this book God knows how many times in 37 years. I never saw this before. Number one, I noticed in the very beginning the book of Deuteronomy is written in the 38th year after they came out of Egypt. Well, they've only got a couple more years before they get into the promised land. 
okay? And I went to the book of numbers, the book of numbers, and it said there that numbers was written in the second year that they came out of Egypt. So numbers is, is telling us what's, hap what's happened in the beginning in the early days. But Deuteronomy is an overview of the whole thing. And so you see this word continuously, remember. Turn to somebody, say remember. remember. Now say it nice and loud like you really heard it. Remember. remember. Now watch this now. I went and studied this out. And in the Old Testament, now I'm, I'm going according to the New King James Version. In the Old Testament, our Old Testament, the word remember appears 162 times. That's a lot. But amongst that 162 times, the book where it appears the most is guess where? Deuteronomy, 15 times. Listen, Deuteronomy 6.12, then take care lest you forget. <laughs> What's he saying? You better remember. Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 24, 18. Are you listening? Yes. Are you getting it? Because this is the message. Okay? But you shall, Deuteronomy 24, 18. But you shall remember. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Let's go to the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a unique book in the Old Testament. I'll, I'll explain that to you. Judges chapter 8, verse 34. You listen it? Thus, the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Wow. Who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. During Gideon's time, which is recorded in the book of Judges, Israel forgot about the goodness of the Lord. They forgot about what he had rescued them from. Now, let me tell you what's, what's, what's unique in the book of Judges. Okay? And I, I would ask you to, to read this. Go read. Go read Deuteronomy and read the book of Judges. You got Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Okay, go, go over to the book of Judges. You see the same cycle over and over again. It's a cyclical book. You see this. The people, they're with God. They're devoted to God. Oh, hallelujah. They're serving God. They're joyful. They're rejoicing. They're reaping the benefits. And then they get full of themselves, and the cycle starts to turn. And by the time they get to the bottom, now they're worshiping the gods of other nations. They've completely forgotten about the God who delivered them out of, who delivered their ancestors out of, out of Egypt, who split the Red Sea, who did all those marvelous wonders in Egypt itself. They forgot. And what happens? Now they start getting the results of who they're worshiping. Sickness breaks out. Famine breaks out. Disease breaks out. They, they, they begin to be attacked by the other nations around them. And so now they start coming up to, but if you looked at the clock, like a quarter to 12, okay? And now they're at that place in the cycle, and they start to cry out to the Lord, and the Lord sends a deliverer, and then they're back on top again. And then when that guy dies, they start all over again. Book of Judges, over and over. And it's all tied to one phrase. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When you and I begin to do what's right in our own eyes, we start that cycle going. And sooner or later, we're going to end up on the bottom. We're going to get the results of forgetting the Lord. We're going to get the results of doing things in our own eyes the way we think we should do. Well, after all, Pastor, I have my dreams for my life. Well, go ahead. Let me know how it works out. <laughs> Call me in about six months from now, okay? And then they start coming back again. That's over and over and over again. How many of you know people that live like that? Most of us don't. How many used to be one of them people that lived like that? So the people of Jesus' day did the same thing. 
In a matter of days, they went from wild celebrations in the streets, to shouting Hosanna, and then to crucify him, crucify him. Listen, the greatest lesson that you and I can learn from this day, as it's recorded for us in Scripture, do not forget to remember the things that the Lord's done in your life. I wish we had the time, but we don't today. I wish we had the time to just go through a few people and say, hey, give us a testimony of what the Lord did in your life, how he healed you, how he rescued you, how he delivered you, how he restored your marriage, how he restored your family, how he saved you. My God, the things that we would stir up within ourselves. Luke chapter 17. Here's another group of people. Then as he, Jesus, entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers. Leprosy was the most terrifying disease of that day. Scared people, frightened people, caused people to put their own family members out of their own village. So Jesus is standing afar off, and there's 10 men. Now, they're standing afar off because it's illegal, according to the law of Moses, for them to come near a person that's cleansed, that's clean, that doesn't have leprosy. In fact, what they would have to do is if they were going to come near a village to try to get some food, they would need to yell, unclean, unclean, so that you would have time to get away from them before they got too far, too close to you. So it's 10 men. Jesus is standing far off. They're standing far from Jesus because I don't think Jesus had a problem with the leprosy. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, and I think what this really means is when he saw their situation, when he saw their faith, when he saw their courage and boldness to be able to come close to a person who's not a leper, they, he recognized they have faith to be healed, okay? And when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Let's, could you read that with me together? As they went... They were cleansed. Let's do it one more time, but do it this way. Watch me. As they went, come on, pick your hand up. As they went, come on, not everybody's doing it. As they went, they were cleansed. Now watch this. Why did he tell them to go show yourselves to the priest? Because the law of Moses stated that if a leper believed that they were cleansed, that they were healed, that their leprosy was gone, that they needed to go to the priest so that the priest could declare them genuinely healed so that they could be welcomed back into their family, welcomed back into their village. So Jesus is saying, you got it. Go show the priest. As they went, they were healed. Now watch this. Now, if I was teaching on faith and teaching on healing, I would use this example. Let me ask you this question. All 10 of them are there. Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. If they would have stood there and went, <laughs> right, yeah. Um, Jesus, master, heal us. Okay, go show yourself to the priest. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. And they stood there. Would they have been healed? Yes. Why? Because faith is released through words and action. <laughs> if I'll say it again. Faith is released through words and action. See, when you say you're trusting God, you believe in God, you're in faith towards God, but you're speaking directly contrary to God and what God says, you're not in faith. If you're in faith, you're going to say, your words are going to line up with what God says about the situation. You're going to take action. So what happens? All 10 of them leave. 
But there's one person there that does something very special. Now, they all got healed. But watch this now. Verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, what did he do? Returned. And with a loud voice glorified God and fell down at, on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't put words in the scriptures for no reason at all. J Jesus, okay, the writer here, who's Luke, is now watch, Luke is, Luke is what, what profession was Luke? Doctor. Doctor. So he's very interested in this story. He's very interested in this story. All right, it's being told to him. Now, Luke wasn't there when this happened. This was told to him. By the way, who told Luke all, all the stuff that he put in the Gospels? Mary. Mary. Go read it. Acts chapter 1. All right, so what happened? This guy turns around. He comes back. He throws himself at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And Luke records he was a Samaritan. Why is that unusual? Because Samaritans were not considered full-bred, full-blooded Jews. They're, they come from a group of people that was a mixture. Just to give you a real quick background, because when you see Samaritan mentioned in the scriptures, don't let it go. There's a reason it's there. You remember the woman at the well? She was a Samaritan. Remember what she said to Jesus? You're a Jew. How are you talking to me, a Samaritan? In other words, the Jews have no dealings with each other. Hundreds of years before this, probably 600 years before this, the Assyrian Empire came and attacked northern Israel. And what they did, what their practice was, in order for them to maintain control over a territory that they conquered, they had this tactic. Pretty ingenious, but it's cruel. They take all the people from that area that they conquered, and they deport them to the furthest point of their empire. And that's why today you have remnants of Judaism in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, even in China. These people were deported from Israel to the furthest part of the Assyrian Empire was what we call today Pakistan, Afghanistan, even the Himalayan mountains, that area, okay? So what did they do? They took the people from that area that they conquered and brought them and settled them in northern Israel. Well, when they did that, they took all their pagan religion with them. They took all their, all their garbage with them. And so later on, when people got restored back to the area, the Jews started to intermarry with the Samaritans, but the Samaritans kept themselves to the north of Israel in the area of Samaria because the Jews in the southern part, Jerusalem, Judea, all the other places, they did not want to have anything to do with these people. And I can see their point because some of their beliefs did not line up with the word of God. So Jesus is making the point, Luke is making the point here, hey, the one that came back to say thank you wasn't even a Jew. The one that came back to say thank you is a foreigner. He's a Samaritan. What's the matter with these other guys? And Jesus goes, hey, wasn't there 10? You know, could you see his, could you see him? A little joking around. So, hey, hey, wasn't there 10 guys up here? How come there's only one to say, that came back to say thank you? Church, don't be like the nine. Don't just keep taking and taking and taking and taking and never go back to say thank you. When you do, you're just like the people on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Four days later, crucify him, crucify him. God is not glorified when we don't have gratitude in our hearts. God is not glorified when we forget the things that he did when we were at the most desperate point of our lives. You and I should be constantly reminding ourselves. You listening? Is this getting anywhere today? Now, maybe Psalm 103 is going to make a little bit of a different sound to it, have a little bit different meaning to it, a little bit richness to it. Psalm 103, verse 2, praise the Lord, my soul, and forget what? 
not all his, come on, say it nice and loud, and forget not all his benefits, not all of them. Don't forget any of them from this, the littlest thing that he's done for you, who forgives all your sins and heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. So like your youth is renewed like the eagle. And everybody on the other side of 50, let me hear you shout right now. Hallelujah. Why? Because it's saying here, if I keep reminding myself of the goodness of the Lord, if I keep remembering, if I keep having, come on, everybody. And all you youngsters, start practicing that now. Why? You've got a promise here. When we keep ourselves in remembrance of all his benefits, when we constantly say, thank you, Lord Jesus, what does it do? It keeps us young like an eagle. And the eagle's interesting. An eagle, I don't have a lot of time here, but let me just tell you this. Interesting process, the eagle. When the eagle, when, when all the rest of the eagles think that the old man eagle is done, he flies away and he gets rid of all his old feathers and he beats his beak on a stone until it shatters and then it reveals a brand new one. Then he comes out of that season with new feathers and a brand new beak and he shows up with all the little youngsters, all the hipster eagles <laughs> and goes... The old man's back in town. <laughs> and the Bible tells us here, and I don't care if you sit there going, not me, not me. There's a lot of us in this room right now that are on the other side of 50. <laughs> I want my youth to renew, be renewed like the eagle. I want, my, I want people come and go, man, you, you, you're younger than you were 20 years ago. Yeah, hallelujah, because I remember all of his benefits. I'm grateful to him for all the things he's done. No matter how small, go ahead, give it up. Be grateful. Don't forget. Don't be shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, when everything is good, and then when things are bad, crucify him. Crucify him. Don't fall into that trap. Lamentations chapter 3. This is another good one. Yet this I will call to mind. Verse 21, 321. Yet this I will call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Anybody in here, don't raise your hands. Anybody in here feeling discouraged? Anybody in here feeling depressed, oppressed? Anybody in here saying, man, what's the use of living anymore? I, I have no hope. Well, look at this verse. Yet this I will call to mind, and therefore I will have hope. He's saying, if you remember these things, what will you have? I'll say it again for those of you that were nodding off. Yet this I will call to mind, therefore I will have hope. If I remind, if I remind, if I remind myself constantly of the goodness of God. What am I going to have? Hope. Hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Stand up, everybody. Stand up, everybody. Man, I hope this blessed you the way it blessed me today. Let's never forget that we once were slaves to sin. Let us never forget the price that was paid for our redemption. Let's always remember to bring to mind the blessings of the Lord, his mercy and grace toward us. Let us also make sure that we remember that without him, we are nothing. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray over each and every individual in this room right now, Lord God. I pray that an attitude of gratitude would rise up on the inside of each one of us, Lord. That when we become discouraged, when the enemy comes to try to bring us down, when that great cloud comes to try to present itself over our lives, we will remember the goodness of God. Just like David said, I remain confident in this, that I will see the goodness of God 
in the land of the living. Now, Father, I pray for every individual in this room. Lord God, if there's, if there's someone here who has not yet come into relationship with you, Father, if there's someone here who has not yet surrendered their life to you, Father, if there's one here who's never had the opportunity yet to declare and make a, a statement of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be that day. If you're here today and you've never, never publicly prayed and said a prayer, really a declaration of faith, that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that you believe that he died on the cross for your sin, and you believe that God raised him from the dead, I want you, please, to take that opportunity right now. We're all going to pray with you. And so right now, those of you that are praying, there'll be some of you that are praying for the very first time. There will be others of you that will pray from your heart to rededicate and recommit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you said that prayer years ago, but you've maybe one time you had a very, very active, very alive relationship with the Lord, but you've drifted away. It's fine, just don't stay there. It's fine, just don't stay there. And today we're going to give you the opportunity to pray and rededicate your life to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's all say this together. Father, Father I, believe I believe with all my heart, all my heart that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is, the is the Son of God. I believe, I believe that he died on the cross, died on the cross to, pay for my sins. to pay for my sins. I believe that you raised him from the dead and he's alive right now, and he's seated in heaven, and he hears my prayer. So therefore, Lord Jesus, I place my trust in you. I declare my faith in you. I believe in you. Come and be my Lord. Come into my heart. I receive you as Savior. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Thank you for making me a child of God. I pray this in your name. Amen. 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 Now, listen, those of you, please, uh, thank you for, for just being so patient this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you all to be seated. Um, when Brian is done up here, those of you that prayed that prayer, please, I'm begging you, please, don't just walk out the door. There'll be individuals standing up here. We want to put a Bible in your hands. We want, to, we want to know who you are. We want, to, we want to be able to answer any questions for you, pray for you, whatever you need. But please, don't, just don't walk out the door. Whether you prayed that for the first time or whether you reconsecrated your life to the Lord today, please let us know. Brian, Amen. come and close us out here.